Luke chapter 5, and uh, starting at verse 27. Uh, it follows on from Jesus healing a paralyzed man, and it says that uh, in the previous verse, everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Okay, brilliant. And I'm back up again. It was a great, it's great to see you. Happy New Year. You have to say that as a Scot anyway. So I know I wasn't here last week, but great Happy New Year to everybody here. And uh, our invitation, sorry, our, our theme for this year, which you will have picked up if you're here last week, was uh, the whole thing of invitation. A, a year of invitation, if you like, um, based on that passage in Zechariah that uh, Tim spoke on uh, last week. And uh, we've been invited to the greatest party ever, the, the banquet of God uh, himself. And uh, we're going to widen this, um, our study of it this morning by looking at this passage in Luke chapter 5. And Jesus is in Galilee. He's, he's, the villages of Galilee are around. There's the Sea of Galilee with everything that's happening there, with the business of the fishermen. And in the process, Jesus calls his first disciples all the way through Luke chapter 5. And uh, he calls Simon Peter, first of all. You remember the fishermen? And he does this amazing catch of fish. And Simon Peter is really afraid. And he says, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Um, but Jesus says, don't be afraid. Come and follow me, and I will make you a fish of men. I'll make you a fisher of people, uh, in fact. And so this great invitation goes out um, and says, actually, I'm going to make you someone who invites other people to this great banquet, to this great party, to this relationship uh, with God as well. And through the chapter, as, as uh, Harry alluded to, Jesus goes on and he heals a leper. And then we have this situation where he heals the paralyzed man. Remember when they, they, they dig through the roof and everybody gets, gets, he gets lowered down on a mat and this amazing thing happens in his life. And so it's after these things that Jesus goes out and he says he saw a tax collector named Levi. And uh, Levi's sitting in a booth, tax collecting, and Jesus simply says to him, follow me. And so he gets up, he leaves everything, and he follows him. Now, for many of us, this is quite a familiar passage. For some of you, it may be a very new passage. But there's a couple of themes that I want to pull out this morning as we go through uh, what we're looking at. And one is about vulnerability, and the other is about our availability. Simon Peter, in, in earlier in the chapter, has showed incredible vulnerability. He recognises Jesus, looks right at his, at his soul, and he recognises he's a sinful person, that he's, he feels not good enough. 
and yet his availability says, I will follow you. We see it in Jesus. Jesus uh, is uh, available to people. He eats with the sinners, with the tax collectors, with the people who are considered outside of, of what is normal behavior, if you like. And, uh, and he makes himself available to them. But he also makes himself very vulnerable because the Pharisees accuse him and misunderstand him of what he's all about. Um, and here Levi is vulnerable in the sense that Jesus comes out and sees who he is and, and all of that. And yet, again, he makes himself available to Jesus and says, I will follow you uh, in it all. Now, tax collectors, as many will know, were not the respectable crowds that we think of today. We, you know, we, we respect the tax collector. However, when you get the brown envelope through from the inland revenue, we probably still kind of brace ourselves a little bit. We think, what is this? It even says Her Majesty's uh, customs and revenues, uh, or whatever. Now, that's government controlled, and we're a little bit, a little bit afraid of it. But in this situation, imagine the mafia owned it. Okay, the mafia owned the tax collecting regime. That is a little bit more like what it felt like back in the Jesus' day. Um, you know, you had plenty reason to be, to be worried. A whole different perspective uh, on things. And in Jesus' day, there were two types of tax collectors, apparently. There was a group known as the Gibai, and uh, they could generally tax uh, things like your property, your ground, uh, your income tax, your poll tax. So just to exist in the Roman Empire, you had to pay, even if you didn't work. That was one group. And there was another lot called the Mokis, and uh, they taxed anything that was imported or exported, uh, and anything that was moved around or traded in any way. And uh, they would set up these toll booths, these little tax booths around the place on roads, on harbour docks, uh, at, uh, on bridges, and they could tax just about anything and anybody that moved around. And if you had a cart, and you're going along with a cart, you would get taxed for every wheel that was on the cart. If you had animals pulling the cart along, you get taxed extra for the wheels. And uh, we're very familiar with this system. If you've ever driven along the M6, that's still kind of very much in operation uh, today uh, as we do that. But there was very little governmental control of this lot, okay? and they would add the profits onto it, they would get their income from it, and uh, that's how it kind of operated. So there were these, these guys, and on the, the, the Mokis, and the, these were not the Mackies, by the way, these were the Mokis. There was the Great Mokis and the Little Mokis. And the Great Mokis were behind the scenes and kind of sent out their minions to go and do all the tax collecting. And the Little Mokis were the people who really got despised because they were there taking your money type of thing. And so when Zacchaeus in Luke 19 talked about as a chief tax collector, he was probably one of these great mokies and would have been absolutely hated. But it was the little ones that they were despised the most. And they could set up booths anywhere across town and they did it for the Romans. They collected taxes for the Romans who so were considered traitors. Now, I tell you that because this is where Levi comes in. Levi, the tax collector. You would not have liked Levi. You, he was not popular at all. And it's interesting because it's, it's been argued that actually Jesus has been drawing the crowds in. Okay? He's been doing some amazing things. People are coming from across the sea, from around the villages. They're all gathering. They've just seen this amazing thing happen uh, with this paralyzed man. Everybody's there. And it's like Levi has realized there's good footfall here. So he is following Jesus around and setting up his tax booth. Because he realizes there's good money to be made from following Jesus around. 
And um, it's a little bit like somebody coming in this morning to church who's a traffic warden, and you were all very welcoming to him, but we go out and we all find we've got parking tickets in the car park. You're thinking, what is that about? Talk about it. You might admire the business entrepreneurship, but really? <laughs> um, so you can imagine how hated uh, he was. Uh, he would not have been allowed in the synagogue. He would not have been allowed to hear the word. He certainly wouldn't have been welcomed there. He really would have been despised by the people. And yet, somehow he's been following Jesus around. And he's starting to hear this life-giving message that he didn't really have access to somewhere else. And as a result of that, amazingly, Jesus invites this guy to follow him. Much to Levi's amazement and to the amazement of everyone else. And as he's heard him over the weeks and been exposed to this, he actually says, I'm re- I actually want to follow you. I want to have something because actually there's so much lacking in my life. Now, the name Levi, uh, many of you will know it was a great Jewish name. Um, it's one of the, the 12 brothers um, and uh, one of Joseph, you know, Joseph and the, the 12 brothers, the 11 brothers that he had and becomes one of the great tribes of Israel, the Levites. And it's from the Levites that you could become a priest, a Levitical priest. And uh, the priests, the Levite priests were people who were there to, uh, as God's go-betweens. Okay, they were there to represent God to the people. They were there to be a loving face of God, a human face of God to the people. They were there to uh, stand in the gap between the people and God. They were there to bring people under the influence of God. And ironically, Levi, you could imagine his parents naming him Levi and thinking this is a wonderful name. We're going to name you after the, the tribe of priests. We, we, that's our prayer for you, is that you'll be someone who represents God well. You will be God's go-between. And ironically, he's no longer, he's not lived his life as God's go-between, but as a tax collector, he's become Rome's go-between. And it's at this point that he changes and he follows the invitation of Jesus. And in that transformation, he actually begins to become a true Levite. And the first thing he does is he throws a great banquet and he invites all of his friends who are all tax collectors this is like an evangelistic traffic warden's convention. Okay? And he invites Jesus there and the disciples there and all the people from his, his workplace, effectively. The people he has a relationship with. And he says, I want to share this with you. He is now doing what he was born to do. He's now doing what his name meant, which was to represent God before people, to bring people under the influence of God. And... Um, One of the things Jesus does in our lives is he helps us to be who we were born to be. He doesn't ask us to give something up because he wants to stifle our lives. He doesn't ask us to change because he wants to ruin our lives, but because he wants to release us to be who we were meant to be. I think one of the most fundamental things that happened uh, in my life when I became a Christian I think as a teenager, I always wanted to be like someone else. I wanted to be as, as skillful as this person. I wanted to be as cool as that person. I wanted to be as um, funny as that guy over there. I wanted to be as confident as someone else. But when I became a Christian, when I, actually when I was about 19, 20, said to God, I want to follow you, one of the fundamental things that changed in my life is I suddenly felt free to just be me, just to be the person that God had made me to be. And I would say that has changed things radically. I was a kid at school, which you would not probably believe, 
who couldn't read out aloud at class. Okay, I could do some daring stuff and I did some stupid stuff and messed around, but if I was actually asked to do something serious in class, like read a passage, I would literally shake. I found it incredibly difficult to do. I could not give a five-minute presentation. I would die doing that. How ironic it is that I've landed up having a job where I regularly give more than five-minute presentations uh, in front of people. But that comes about because God does something. He doesn't come to stifle us. He changes us to release us to be who we were born to be in some way. And so it is with Levi. He leaves everything and he follows him and he becomes God's go-between. And actually, that's what each of us is to be. We're each of us, you know, the priesthood of believers. We're, we're, we're priests, as it were. We're to be Levites. We're to be those that represent God before others and bring others under the influence of God. And Jesus gives them a new name. He gives them the, the name Matthew, which means a gift of God. And uh, so here's a guy who, who actually goes on and writes Matthew's gospel, as we know it today. So not only does he bring his other tax collectors under the influence of God through this great banquet that he throws. But actually, he goes on to influence the whole world um, as he writes his gospel. So the invitation goes out to others. He throws a party. And uh, someone said of our world today that the best kept secret is Jesus. Okay, probably in Birmingham, the best kept secret in Birmingham is the truth about Jesus. Um, people have got lots of mixed feelings about church, but actually Jesus, if they knew who Jesus was, they would, they would want to know something more about him. So here's something, you might want to do this in your own time, but at some point think about what is the f- your favorite words that Jesus said? Or what's your favorite scene from the gospels where Jesus is involved? Okay, the one that really grabs you, um, do you even know what that is? Because until we know what that is, how are we going to share about who this Jesus is? And then just start to really get hold of that. You know, why is it that I like these words? Why is it, you know, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You know, I'm going away to prepare a place for you and I'm coming back for you. Or, you know, I'm the bread of life. He who follows me will never go hungry. Or maybe it's that scene with Jesus and the adulteress and she's caught and they're all about to stone her and Jesus says, he who's without sin cast the first stone. I don't know what it would be for you, but get hold of what that is and think about it and why is it important to you and pray about it and internalize it in a way so that you could share even just that with someone uh, about Jesus. In conversation, you know, I'm really taken with Jesus. He said this, and he did that. And if they ask more, as often people do, then you can tell them more. And if they don't want to know more, then that's fine. Just stop. Um, somebody did some research, very recently actually, about how people are viewed, Christians are viewed. And they discovered a couple of things. Firstly, that most people in this country know a Christian. That's quite a connection. Okay, most people know a Christian somewhere. The second thing they discovered is that 60% of what we say to people who are outside the family of God doesn't make any sense to them, okay? So we've got, we've got to learn, we've got to use language that works. We've got to not get stuck into jargon, but actually be very clear and, and normal in how we speak to people. And secondly, always the second principle is not only to be understood by people, but also to leave them positive for the next encounter. So you don't have to say everything, but leave them positive for the next time um, they encounter something of God. And you, I know a guy who plays word tennis. So he studied, he's an evangelist, so you know, he likes chatting to people. But he, he plays word tennis, and he just drops something over the net. So he just say, oh, you know, I, 
I read something really interesting the other day and waits for somebody to say, oh really, what was that? Oh, it was some words of Jesus, amazingly. Really? And, he, and then he tells them something about it. And he, he doesn't go any further until the ball comes back. He throws it back into their court, it comes back, and then you take the conversation as you do. Now that takes, uh, you know, that takes us, makes us quite vulnerable. But it also means that we need to be available uh, to people uh, in different ways. So vulnerability and availability, two key aspects as we share our lives. You know, I can remember feeling very vulnerable when, having become a Christian uh, at university, I stood in front of my, my final year class, there was about 13 of us, and said, I've become a Christian and I'm getting baptised and I want to invite you all. And, you know, and I got all the you know, various jokes, laughs and heckles that you do. You feel vulnerable doing that. Um, and yet it's an important step in our lives. You know, I felt very vulnerable when I, uh, um, I lived with some international students when I first came to Birmingham and I knocked on somebody's door and said, um, you've been going through some stuff. I said, do you want to at some point look at the Bible? Well, look at, actually it was John chapter one, bizarrely. Do you want to actually understand something of what Jesus um, did and why he was here? And to my surprise, they said yes. I thought, oh, flip, what do I do now? You know, phone a friend. <laughs> the guy said, yes, what do I do? Um, so, you know, you make yourself vulnerable. Three o'clock one morning, the same guy knocked on my door. He was, he was I think, in his 30s. He was African, so he didn't really know <laughs> how old he was. But anyway, and he knocked on my door, Kenyan guy, and tears coming down his, his cheeks, absolutely scared to death because he'd, he'd had a bad accident somewhere along the line and needed to have an operation and was just, you know, in another country, the fear of that. He felt very vulnerable knocking on my door, not knowing what to say. But in those moments is when real connection happens. Okay, these are the things that mean you've got a lifelong friend, a lifelong connection, because people make themselves vulnerable and available uh, to one another. And um, it's when we let ourselves be seen, deeply seen, vulnerably seen, that these connections come about. Some of you will have come across, uh, uh, I've forgotten her name already, Brené Brown. Um, she's, she's done a thing on vulnerability. She's a social scientist. There's a YouTube clip, 22 million hits. Oh, somebody must have watched it. Um, anyway, so, and she's just researched this whole thing of, of connection. And she really argues that connection is what makes life worth living. Okay, connection is what makes life meaningful and gives purpose uh, to life. It's why we're here. But connection involves vulnerability. Initiating a friendship or a conversation without any guarantees. Uh, here's one of her quotes. Vulnerability is at the core, the heart, the center of meaningful human experiences. It's the birthplace of love, belonging, joy, courage, empathy, creativity. And we live in a world that is afraid of it, um, and so most people uh, numb it. We try and numb it in some way because we, we're afraid so much of it. And she observes, and uh, she's in the States, so that's kind of more her, kind of her context, but particularly across the West, is that the way people do it is that we're actually the, we're the most uh, in debt adults, we're the most uh, obese adults, we're the most addicted adults, we're the most medicated adults in history. Um, because people try to numb these things in their lives. And you can't selectively numb one thing 
without numbing the other stuff. So if we, if we, if we don't, then actually we, we numb joy and, and happiness and gratitude as well. Um, and so we end up feeling miserable, so we have a few more beers and we, we go down the circle again. But it's actually when we, we're vulnerable with people, it's when we open our lives up to people, that actually we find real life, we find real joy. And there's a lot of people out there find it very, very difficult. And so we've got, to be, we've got to be people that really know how to bring these core values, core Christian values of love and acceptance and forgiveness so that people feel safe to be accepted, to share their lives, to open up about their lives. Where one with another, whether it's with other Christians, whether it is with God, whether it is with uh, people outside of the family of God. But they are crucial in all our relationships. And our fear of, of not sharing our lives, uh, or not sharing our faith with others, is actually the fear of disconnection. That if people know something about us, then we won't be worthy. They, they will think we're not worthy to be known. And so we feel, uh, we feel afraid of that because it's because it is about connection and disconnection, losing relationship, having relationship. It's a universal thing. And it takes courage to be vulnerable. The word courage, kur, the first part of that word, comes from an old word which means heart. The heart, to tell the story of who you are with your whole heart, to tell the story of who you are with your whole heart. And, um, it's, but it's when we're authentic with people, it's when we're real with people that we really connect with people. And whether that's in a, in a small group or actually whether that is in our witness, what people are looking for is authenticity in our lives. They're looking for the real us. And as they do, they will be exposed to the real God that is at work in our lives. I came across um, a Christian community in Northumbria, and they have a rule of life based uh, on these two words, vulnerability and availability. Firstly, availability. Oops, okay. So firstly, available to God. Available to God in the, in the, the cell of their own hearts to say to God, the secret place, I, I'm looking for you. I wanna follow you, I'm seeking your face. Okay, that takes availability, as we've seen with Levi. Available to others, um, and that is, they see as a call to hospitality, that when we're hospitable to someone, we welcome someone in the name of Jesus. Actually, we, we honor and welcome Jesus himself when we invite people into our homes. <laughs> Levi throws this great banquet and he invites everyone. Available to care and love other people uh, in their point of need and to pray for them. To be available for participating in mission in all the various kinds and forms that it comes. So their first rule of life is, is availability, to be available to God, to others, to the world. And uh, that is exactly what we see with Levi. The second, Oh, here we go. This is my clever PowerPoint that's gone funny. Vulnerability. And so the second rule is to be, have intentional, deliberate vulnerability. And uh, first of all, that is the vulnerability of being teachable. In my prayer, God, teach me more about myself and about you. Uh, with scripture, you know, teach me so that my life can be different. Um, 
being willing to be accountable to others so that I can reorder my life and bring transformation to my life. That is, it's all vulnerability stuff. The vulnerability of speaking out against things that are wrong, about injustice, takes vulnerability to do the right thing at the right moment. Um, to put relationships right, to be the first to say, I love you, to be the first to say, I'm sorry. Vulnerability. The vulnerability of uh, being church without walls. You know, we had a great time with Red Lion Pub. We did some carols over there um, just before Christmas. But you, know, you could tell that you know, we felt quite vulnerable in there, going into a different environment and trying to work out how do we do mission here in a very normal kind of way. Um, living openly amongst unbelievers and also other believers in a way that the life of God can be seen, can be challenged, can be questioned so that people can see it and integrate and engage with it. And that involves building relationships outside of our normal Christian huddles and outside of our normal Christian kind of ghettos uh, that we have. And so Jesus was challenged by the religious fraternal. Why do you eat and drink with sinners and tax collectors? And even afterwards in verse 33, it says, your disciples go on eating and drinking uh, like Levi uh, was here, throwing his party. They didn't get it because they were stepping out into the world, making themselves vulnerable, but making themselves available to that. And so the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they saw the unreligious, the unbeliever, if you like, they saw them as like a kind of lower class citizen almost. Rather, as somebody has put it, as people who've got dormant spirits like a balloon waiting to be filled with the breath of God. Okay, people with dormant spirits like a balloon waiting to be filled with the breath of God. And so God offers to fill our lives uh, afresh this morning so that we can be part of helping God fill the lives of others that aren't here this morning, that live in our streets, that live and work with us in the, the offices and the factories and the places that we work uh, and all of that. Let's pray as we come to a close. Simple kind of questions really for our own hearts. Am I willing to be released by God afresh to be a go-between for others, to stand between God and others, to, to bring influence of God into the lives of others, to throw some parties perhaps this year, to have some meals with friends, neighbors, family this year, to, to meet for coffees or a beer with those that are outside of the family of God. Am I willing to do that? And maybe just maybe just share something of my life to open up that, that vulnerability that perhaps opens up them as well. Because that's, that's how God says we connect with people. And that's how people find life, his life in us. Lord, help us to be people that don't keep you as the best kept secret in Birmingham, but help us to be people that make you known through our words, our actions, and our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.